Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us today for this episode. Today we talk with Christy Bennett, who is now a grief recovery specialist, but her story started with a very protracted, difficult story of loss. So Christy contacted me and described a situation that many of you will recognize, and that was one of misdiagnosis and um, long drawn out waiting lists that eventually led to her mother's death. And we unpack that in this episode and with a very, very mindful process of understanding we can't control the moment that death is going to come. But man, let us be more informed by these stories of how we might walk this walk in the future and be able to better advocate for ourselves or enlist somebody to advocate for us within the medical field when we are mired deeply in so many professionals telling us where and where what to do. Um, these were her words in one of her closing paragraphs when she first contacted me. I was very angry when mom died, angry about the medical system, angry about the funeral system, and angry that we do not talk about death in Western culture. On top of all this, I did not know how to help my children through grief. I did not have a clue how to handle loss. It was extremely frustrating. And now Christy's on a mission, and she wants to help this process become a little less frustrating for other people. And by hearing her deep story, that will get you started on that path. We really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for listening. Hey, Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I really, really appreciate it. Well, if you've listened before, and I know you have, you realize Mm -hmm. that basically what we do is uh, you just share where you're at in the world and just go right into your story for us, please. Okay, perfect. And my story starts back in 2014 on July 1st. And this day, my 64-year-old mother was driving a home alone to Edmonton after visiting my brother's family in Kelowna, BC. And that's about 10 hours apart. So she had a fair amount of time driving. And she loved spending time with her three youngest grandchildren out there. Along the way, she stopped at a Starbucks. She does this all the time, the same place on her way home to get a coffee and a muffin. And this is pretty standard for mom. Mm. But what happened was she started to immediately choke on the muffin, actually severely, that she couldn't catch her breath. And of course, she did what all people are supposed to not do. She went into the washroom because mm. she was embarrassed of coughing and she couldn't get this muffin down her throat. Fortunately for my mom at that time, she was able to clear her airway. Um, But by the time that she got home, it just that feeling of something stuck in her throat wouldn't leave her. Mm. And this is when my mom started to have problems. 
So it all started with this really weird choking incident Mm -hmm. in a Starbucks. And this, I, I really say this is the beginning of my mom's medical journey after this. So mom um, consistently after this had difficulty swallowing any food and it would often go into a coughing fit. So she would be sitting there and she would just take little bites of food. And then all of a sudden it was like it was getting stuck Mm -hmm. and she would just kind of go into this, this coughing fit. And it was a really uncomfortable coughing fit where you almost want to get up and kind of pat somebody on the back. You know, it's, it's like that. Mm-hmm. And I just remember her trying to eat, but she would constantly kind of just gag it mm-hmm. and then sometimes give up altogether and just spit it out. So it was extremely frustrating for her. And it progressed so much that by Thanksgiving um, weekend in October, she could no longer eat solid food. She was actually surviving on a liquid meal replacement. I don't know if anyone's familiar with like insurers, Mm -hmm. Um, but this is what she was starting to drink to get her nutrition. And that Thanksgiving dinner, she was in such good spirits though. Um, She helped cook the turkey. She helped prepare at my brother's place. She did try to have a little bit of food, but immediately started that choking, that kind of gasping. Um, which was actually really quite scary to watch. Um, It was so actually tiring for her that she actually had to go lie down during Thanksgiving Mm. dinner. And my family is actually very, very close, and we love spending time together. I have two younger brothers, um, of course, one that lives out of town. But that's what we would do. We would get together and have family meals. So it was really important in our house to kind of keep that going and have that. And I know... This was extremely frustrating for mom. She just loved getting us together and enjoying a meal with family. So I really, my heart really hurt for her. And it was extremely worrisome as well. Uh, It was clear that she was struggling. She was starting to lose a little bit of weight, of course, because now she's on a liquid diet. But at that time, she was also paying for private health care. So in Alberta, we are very fortunate that we do have public health care. But my mom, just being at her age at 64, um, just wanted to be an advocate for herself and Mm -hmm. decided to private health care was a new thing to our city. And she decided to jump in. She really thought it was an amazing idea. She really wanted a doctor that paid attention to her and took care of her needs, really hands on, Mm -hmm. not like the normal You know, you go in for 15 minutes, the doctor's kind of rushed, you have barely any time to express like what's going on. She didn't want that anymore. She wanted more. And so she was paying monthly for this private health care. So really, I think that all of us thought that mom was in really good hands, right? Mm, And of course, yeah. So we thought, okay, we got this, you know, this is going to be figured out. And For myself personally, I really wasn't that type of person to immediately jump to conclusions or make assumptions about what was wrong. I really tried to take the mindset of that whatever it is, that we will deal with it when she's diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So I kind of kept that in my mind. So I remained reasonably calm uh, during this time and just kind of went through the motions of 
you know, of, of helping her and supporting her, but not letting my mind go down any road. I wasn't, I wasn't going there. Healthy. Good for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So initially the doctors thought that mom had something called esophagus achalasia. Um, So, which is a serious condition that affects your esophagus. So the lower esophageal sphincter, like that Mm -hmm. ring that kind of closes off the esophagus from the stomach, that was where they thought the issue was. So they thought if you have, yeah, if you have achalasia, your sphincter fails to open up during swallowing, which Mm. it's supposed to do normally. And this leads to a backup of food within your esophagus. This actually made complete sense. Absolute sense. We were like, okay, yeah, this is what mom has for sure. But around that time, I think, I believe it was just, I want to say it's a little bit foggy to me, but I believe around that time, mom was able to get her first attempt at a scope. So they send that scope down and they want to check things out on the inside. But when the doctors attempted this, it was absolutely unsuccessful. They could not get the scope down into mom's stomach to take a look. Mm. And it was very vague. The description was kind of like, oh, no, we couldn't do this. It wasn't successful. Okay, so let's move on. And it was really, I think, frustrating because after that it was, okay, now what? And so a few weeks later, I remember this um, specifically, and my sister-in-law really reinforced this message that my mom sent her. And it was on November 11th. So we had started these symptoms in July, but now we're already into November. And at that time, her blood tests all came back normal. And it was so much so that the doctors actually said that she was in amazing shape. And my mom actually, like, she sent in her text message, Oh, good news, guys. Like, I'm in incredible shape. Like, and we were like, okay, yes, uh, right? Mm. She was still, like, so optimistic. And her optimism made us the same. We felt like, okay, this, you know, she's got this. Like, she's healthy. We kind of all thought that maybe just a minor surgery was needed at that time. So and big, big yeah. exhale. Yes, it was. It was kind of hearing that and knowing that, you know, she is starting the road of these specialists, that it's slow and steady, kind of moving forward, but really, um, and you think the private health care situation is helping, but really, in hindsight, when I look at it, things were were actually really taking a long time to get done. Like Mm -hmm. private health care does not fast track you. So the problem is you need to go back into the public system when you need to see a specialist, right? So then, mm. right, you get this hands-on general practitioner doctor, but anytime you need a specialist, this is not fast-tracked. So, and we all, I think we can agree, and most of us had this, if you have to see a specialist, it can take weeks to get yes. into a specialist, right? Yes. right? So we really felt that this was taking a long time now, like mom in my mind, was losing weight. Um, You know, definitely she was optimistic about her blood tests and that, but clearly mom was getting thinner. She wasn't able to eat solid foods. You know, something's really going wrong here. And if we don't kind of get this going, this this isn't going to go well. Like, how long can you go on drinking liquid insurers? Right. Not sustainable. 
No, it, and that's kind of what is becoming apparent to us, that mom has been drinking these for quite a few weeks now, and what is getting done. My mom was very fortunate. Um, my mom's sister, um, my aunt, uh, worked in the medical system and had many connections with different doctors and specialists there. And it was kind of her that sounded the alarm that, hey, something's wrong here. Like, this is taking way too long to get seen by the next specialist. And we all started to feel like that anxiety rise. We were becoming really frustrated. Um, it just seemed like mom was slowly starving, but nobody really cared, I guess, mm -hmm. except us, except us. And on my aunts, you know, she kind of really pushed my mom a little bit. And it was then that my mom discovered that her file was basically sitting on the desk of a specialist that was on vacation for a month. Oh, no. Yes, exactly. And luckily, with persistence, my mom was able to get help from the receptionist um, that worked for this doctor. And she was able to get a hold of her own file. And then that was when my aunt kind of stepped it into gear and kind of was able to advocate for my mom. Um, because it, so far there was really no urgency in, in her care. So finally on December 3rd, so this is six months after the first symptom, mom finally gets admitted into the hospital to get a second scope. And the only reason she got this appointment was insisted and hassled hospital administration to put her case at the top for review. So it's just through connections that my aunt had mm -hmm. that this happened. So I, I don't know, honestly, what, if we didn't have that connection, I, I honestly don't know what would have happened. I, I don't even go there to think, to think about that. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's really, really scary. And, um, and, again, the, and, and yes. if we can just interject, absolutely. We know that that is happening to other people and that is very, very oh. troubling and sad. Yes, absolutely. And it was really during this whole ordeal that we just felt so frustrated with the medical system and saw mm. how overwhelmed they were. Mm -hmm. Like it was broken. There's something mm -hmm. broken here that you can't get fast, adequate care when mm -hmm. you're in an emergency situation. Unless you come in on a gurney, from the you know the the ambulance right it, it's it's impossible so my uh mom was able to get this second scope and again i believe this scope was delayed for two days and in order to get the scope you can't eat so again my oh, mom's wow. in the hospital not eating to begin with and then not eating again in the hospital and it was so painful for us to watch. And it was agony for my mom that I think after two days, she finally got this scope. And of course, they could not get the scope down like the first time. And it was discovered that mom had a mass. They finally said, like, it's, it's a mass blocking it. And um, oh my so she just was getting weaker and weaker in the hospital. And finally, she was sent for the PET scan. Okay, so this is really so much longer than expected. 
Um, and I remember, so my mom was still in the hospital and I believe she was in there for about a week this time. And during that time, kind of to deal with the stress that I was feeling with the situation and trying to remain calm, I remember I was really working out quite a, quite a bit. I had a, a gym in my house at that time, and I know that was kind of my outlet. And I remember, like, thinking back, I can actually think back on it now, was I actually considered that I was almost in the best shape of my life during this time. So if you could imagine this you know, this whole, whole thing happening. And I'm like in my gym, like exercising that energy out Mm -hmm. just so I could be present and clear headed when I was with mom. So I remember, so I was riding my, I had a stationary bike at home and I remember getting the call from my dad. Like we were waiting for a call after the Mm -hmm. PET scan. And, um, he basically said it's cancer and that it was bad and I needed to come to the hospital right away. And uh, I remember that feeling of Mm -hmm. just, okay, all right, that's what it is, cancer. Okay, let's go. Like, it was like that. Let's go. We Mm -hmm. got this. I can do this. You know, I got this. Let's go. And so I remember driving to the hospital, which was about 25 minutes from my house and just trying to remain like completely clear-headed and not jumping to all sorts of conclusions Um, and actually when I think about this day, I, this was one of my most regretful days, actually, um, as a person, as the relationship with my mom. Uh, so throughout this whole ordeal with mom, I really viewed my role as the light hearted one, you know, like I wanted to bring mom some light, some energy, some laughter every time I saw her, just like trying to make her smile or trying to think of happy things, you know, like I I wanted to be that person for her. Mm -hmm. And I really fell into that role and was really sitting there. Um, My younger brother who lived in the same city as me was really the caretaker of the family. He's such a gentle, caring spirit that was always there, like with my dad and mom kind of going through the everyday going to the testing. He was there whenever possible. So that was kind of what I viewed as his role because he was so good at it. And I really viewed my role as that positive kind of light, that burst of, you know, just getting, giving mom a break really about thinking about what's going on. And so when I arrived at the hospital um, to see mom after the diagnosis and I walked in the room and I could see that my brother had been crying and my dad you know, couldn't speak. And this is a man um, that never cried, never saw my dad cry, like never um, saw that emotion from him. And, and I could see that he was really, really struggling. And my mom was in her bed and my sister-in-law arrived at the same time. And mom told us, um, okay, girls, the doctor said, you know, we, we had a discussion and it looks like I have about one year to live. Mm. Okay. One year. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, like, yeah, this is in my mind. Okay. Okay. Um, It was absolutely shocking. It was almost like a a numbing sensation went through me. But it was at this time that I kind of said to mom, I go, mom, then we got a lot of crap to do. (laughs) We got to get those tickets and we got to go see Ellen. Because that was (laughs) one thing. Okay. We had always talked about, right. Is doing Mm -hmm. these 
experiences and my sister-in-law and my mother and myself had seen Oprah. And now we were like, we need to go see Ellen. We got to get there. And we all kind of laughed. But afterwards, when I went home, I really regretted that I did that. And I didn't acknowledge the seriousness of the situation. Mm. Like I kind of stepped back and I said, you know what? Like kind of were you thinking there? Like I can't imagine what my mom was going through mm-hmm. and what she was thinking. And it was like instead I made a comment like that. And I remember feeling deeply shameful. Um, you know, just trying to bring lightness to a situation that was so dark. And uh, so I kind of, I really had to, you know, really forgive myself for that. And it took a long time to forgive myself. And I don't think that mom looked at it in any way that I was trying to hurt her or, you know, I don't think that. But at the time it was really, you know, I really, really did regret that. But yeah. Well, it sounds like, that was your role as you described Mm -hmm. in the family. And Mm -hmm. I guess it just pops out to me that, you know, it, it was serious. Everybody in the room knew it was serious. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's, there's no way you could get around that it was serious. So I, I am, I'm not trying to dismiss the pain that it caused you, but I do know that regret is a huge part of the grieving process for absolutely everybody, you know, and you tend to kind of put on a magnifying glass for those moments. I just wish I would have done this a little differently. I just, why did I say this? So just be gentle with yourself. Yes. (laughs) And it was, it was really, it's like that you go through this relationship review Hmm. and this is what kept coming up for me. Yes. But I feel, you know, you're right. You have to show yourself some self-compassion. Yes. All you can do. So quickly after that, mom was sent for more tests to see if the mask could be surgically removed in any way, right? To Mm -hmm. prolong life in any way. Whereabouts was the mask, Christy? It was right. So we discovered that it was in her upper stomach. So it was blocking. So into the esophagus tube there. So it was actually moving into that direction. It was actually going up. So that's why they could not do a scope. And that's why she was having trouble swallowing because it was in that position. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So it it, it was not good. And so they did, um, of course, do more testings, of course, no more food. And I remember it was just, I believe, a couple days after that I happened to be in the hospital room with her and she wasn't in very good spirits. And we're, I was just kind of holding space for mom and a specialist walked in with an assistant. I, you know, at this time, this is all a fog for me. I don't even remember. I don't even think we knew this doctor and we didn't know the assistant. And at that time they came to deliver the news that mom had inoperable stomach cancer, that there was nothing they could do. Mm that they had found that cancer cells were uh, floating within her abdominal fluids. And Mm -hmm. once these grabbed hold to all her different organs, that it was just, it was too late. And at that time, like that was, my mom was just devastated, like inconsolable. And they were just like, I just remember that moment, like the doctor, like a robot, 
mm-hmm. giving me giving us the news mm-hmm. and I was almost like can you just get the heck out of here right now like leave with your abrupt cold message mm. like it was like that like where's the compassion it was I was absolutely heartsick and angry at the same time in that moment like just can you leave now thank you for that and get the heck out of here which could have been I'm understanding from what you're saying that may have been mitigated if they had had a compassionate bedside manner oh yes absolutely they had none they had none not no bedside manner none not whatsoever and I didn't understand that I really struggled with that messaging and it wasn't the first time I heard it. Um, I had heard when mom was in, um, well, actually I'm getting a bit mixed up, but later on I heard that news again in the same way um, to someone else. And so it kind of reinforced like what is going on here? Like what is with our healthcare system and the compassion? So Honestly, at this point, my whole family was just in an uproar and, and really disgusted. It, w- it was absolutely overwhelming um, that this was kind of what was going on. And it was that time um, we started to look at other treatment options in the United mm-hmm. States. And it was through a conversation my husband knew a very influential, he knows a very influential businessman in Edmonton. And he started to say, hey, have you looked at other options? Like there's mm-hmm. other things you can do here that are outside of Canada. And um, I'm very, I felt like we were very fortunate that we would have been able to uh, have that option. Mm -hmm. Um, We had the resources my father did at the time to do that. And of course was willing to do anything to, you know, have any sort of treatment for mom. And so we did explore those options and we found a a hospital, a renowned um, cancer treating hospital in Houston And, but by the time mom was accepted, which was quite quickly, you could see the toll on mom. There was Mm. no way we didn't know if she would survive the travel. It just was that delicate at that time. And she also then had an appointment at our own cross cancer facility here in the city um, for treatment options. So in the end, we decided to stay put. So mom was finally released from the hospital, um, you know, after about a week, it was just probably a week. And they, the doctors had put in a stent, which was hoping to put a, like a small opening into her stomach in hopes that she would be able to swallow food again. I don't even know exactly how that was going to work, but it was like almost beside the mass and pushing. So it would allow this small, tiny little tube for my mm-hmm. mom again. Mm. So we were very hopeful that this thing would work, right? That she'd be able to kind of regain her strength, like get some decent nutrition in her. Because really we found, okay, this is her chance to rally. And also what was really important to us is that we had a huge family trip planned on the 17th of December. Mm -hmm. There were 17 of us heading to Hawaii. And this was something that we did every two to three years as a family my brothers and I and my parents and all the kids and everything. And um, so this was looming, of course, on us, right? And my parents insisted that we go, okay? Insisted, sat us down and said, no, 
This is something for mom to look forward to. This is something, a goal for mom. You need to go. And mm -hmm. we're going to focus on gaining strength so we can meet you there. We're going to meet you there before Christmas. And I remember this specifically. This is really a huge um, vision for me. My sister-in-law at that time helped my mom pack a suitcase. And I remember it just stayed on my mom's floor in her bedroom every day, every day, every day, encouraging her, mom, this is what you got to look forward to. You got this, mom, like you can do this. And I remember seeing that suitcase afterwards too, um, when this had all, you know, ended and, and gone through. And, and it's just such a powerful vision for me. So we did leave. And I got to tell you, it was the hardest thing. I, I don't think it was extremely hard to have a holiday when your mom is suffering in this way. Mm -hmm. And it was on December 23rd um, that we received the devastating call that uh, my parents weren't going to make it. Mom was far too weak. She hadn't regained any strength. The stent wasn't working. Nothing was working. Uh, Mom was still, she was at home now, still on her liquid diets that she was struggling with. And I remember talking to her on the phone and, oh, God, just one of the most painful things in my life. She was devastated, bawling, couldn't mm. speak. Mm. And at that point, you know what? I finally broke down. I broke down. Mm -hmm. I knew this was bad. And uh, we were fortunate enough that my dad arranged to fly uh, myself and my two brothers home on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And we were going to surprise mom on Christmas morning. So we hopped on a flight, left our families behind, and we hopped on this overnight flight. And I remember we, you know, got into the, the cab. We drove to my mom and dad's house. We snuck into the door early the next morning. It, I can't remember how early it was. And uh, this was the first time when mom saw us. <laughs> I'll never forget. I'll never forget when we arrived. Mm -hmm. Never forget that moment. She was so unbelievably shocked mm -hmm. and happy to see us. And I believe it's one of the first times I ever heard mom say the F word. <laughs> <laughs> she said, what the F are you guys doing here? <laughs> and we all ran to her and we were hugging and crying and it was the best thing we ever did. And we were absolutely, uh, it, it just was like we were family of five again. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely um, devastating mm -hmm. and beautiful at the same time. And we spent our final Christmas together. Mm. I love so much that you, you all were present enough with what was happening to give her that honoring, mm -hmm. that rally of family. You know, many mm -hmm. people many stories, you know, people just aren't able to, to face death and to look at what might be coming. And I'm just very moved hearing this. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yes. Mm. Yes. And, uh, sure. What I've wanted my entire family, my kids there, my, you know, nieces and nephews, of course. Mm. Um, but at least, you know, we could, we could be there. And there's something so really, that feels really yeah. special about that. The family mm -hmm. of origin, having that little yeah. nest of time alone, because probably what other way would you have gotten that, you know, no, with no. all of your extended families? 
Yeah, there's something full got, circle there, isn't there? There, there absolutely was, and I can tell you that. And my ha- my parents had renovated their house, so they really only had one bedroom at the time. So my brother, I was sleeping on the living room couch, and I had one brother like downstairs on the the base, you know, on the basement couch. Mm. And so we were all over the place, you mm. know. So we slept under the roof together, like we did as kids, like one mm-hmm. last time mm-hmm. together. And mom spent most of it in bed. And I have to tell you, it was uh, extremely alarming. And I was terrified. Mm. She looked so frail and weak. And, you know, each one of us just we crawled into bed with mom. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, talked to her and, and just, just were there. Yeah. Just were there. And of course, no presents. No, nothing like that. My mom's sister was kind enough to cook a turkey for us. If you can imagine that she thought of this mm-hmm. and delivered a simple Christmas dinner for us. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, mom, you know, could not eat that. And it was kind of, it was sad, but we were just so thankful that we got that time together mm-hmm. and with mom. And mom clearly was going, uh, was doing not, not well. And she was admitted into the hospital a few days later. And it was decided that my middle brother, my beautiful caretaker brother decided to stay. And he was going to support my dad. Um, while we, my younger brother and myself went back to collect our families. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like a heart wrenching experience because my mom turned 65 years old on December 31st. She was mm. a New Year's Eve baby. Mm-hmm. And none of us were there except my brother and dad. And uh, I remember my brother telling me that they went shopping for a specific piece of jewelry, something they could give mom uh, that was special and meaningful. And, and I remember my brother telling me the story that they found this diamond necklace and it had three diamonds that kind of lie in a line down and they meant past present and future and my dad gave that to her and and I carry that and I wore that necklace after my mom was gone for probably two solid years Mm. Mm -hmm. and um so after my mom went into the hospital again the doctors tried various treatments they finally resorted to a stomach feeding tube and this was in January and on January 20th Um, we were told that she was hit with four different infections and I believe with a fungal infection as well. The stomach feeding tube almost killed her. And that's the risk. Mm. That's the risk you take um, with that type of surgery. Absolutely. So we were called in at that time to say goodbye. And I remember those moments in the hospital and she was just in the regular uh, hospital at that time. Um, But she rallied. Hmm. we stayed there she rallied and she came out of it and she had this energy back it was an incredible moment for all of us it was a little beacon of hope mm-hmm. but um that was not to be um but we were fortunate as a family that um, we were able to get mom into palliative care around january 27th mm-hmm. and the nurses and the doctors when she moved over into that facility were absolutely incredible. I cannot say enough about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but reality is there. It creeps in. You're in palliative yeah. care now. Yeah. You're in palliative care and, and you know, that's the beginning of the end. 
And one specific memory I have is that a palliative care nurse, um, you know, called my brother and my dad and myself aside one night and uh, told us that we needed to have a conversation with mom, that clearly mom was not going to make it. And Mm -hmm. maybe in her eyes, she was seeing denial in us. Mm -hmm. You know, in hindsight, I don't know if this should have been her place to do that, but she saw something there that she needed to voice um I think maybe out of care for mom because at this time mom was holding so much fluid in her body that it was starting to just seep through her skin and her legs Mm. like her skin was just tissue yeah and I think the nurse kind of wanted us to tell mom it was okay to go Mm mm-hmm And so my dad, of course, you know, no, like he's not doing this. Like he's not going to do this. He can't. It's just so, Mm -hmm. so hard. And it's decided that, you know what, I'll do it. I decide I'm going to do this. I'm going to have this conversation. Because before this, we never discussed death. This was not something about we ever, ever discussed in our family from, you know, growing up. It was like, if you discuss death. You were going to die soon. It was just like this thought of, right? I think a lot of us have that feeling. Yes. You don't want to jinx yourself. Yes. Thank you. That's exactly (laughs) the word. You don't want to jinx yourself. So no one spoke of it. Mm -hmm. No one spoke of this reality. It was clear that mom was going to die. But no one wanted to bring it up. And even the Mm -hmm. doctor, I felt, was kind of like a little bit vague about it. Because they, of course, want to give you hope. In some way, I think. I don't even know. But it was decided that I would be the one. So I, like, honestly, I had to pump myself up to do this. It was just impossible. It was the hardest conversation I've ever had to had. But in the end, you know, I really wanted to know mom's wishes. Yeah. You know, I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know what she wanted her legacy to be. I wanted to know where her jewelry could go. I wanted... To know, you know, what her thoughts were, were about funerals and burials, cremation. I, I did. I wanted to know it all. Right. And so I brought it up as gently as I could. And mom turned and she looked at me and she said, Chris, don't. I can't talk about it. Mm. I can't give up hope. Stop. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. We never talked about it again. Yeah. And at that time, well, you have to follow her lead, right? Yes, absolutely. I I would never bring it up again. I would never dishonor mom like in that way. Yeah. That was, she was hanging on. Right. And that's how she wanted to deal with it. Yeah. So we never talked about it again. And I had a lot of anger, um, you know, about it, but that wasn't the thing I needed to deal with right now. Yeah. Um, so we just, we just simply avoided any conversation about it. Um, and the last two weeks of mom's life were extremely hard. Uh, we brought in all our kids to say goodbye and it was almost like she didn't know, like we all got together and, you know, we pretended to be strong and, you know, if you cracked a tear, you kind of stayed in the back. Um, I get very emotional thinking of that because we, mm-hmm. I can picture her surrounded by her grandchildren mm-hmm. and they were all trying to put on smiley faces. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, the morning she died, it was uh, a moment that she was in, in, she had rallied back, like she had gone in and out of um, really consciousness and, and um, hallucinations. At one point, she had seen her dead father, which had, which had absolutely terrified her. Um, she would randomly speak about other people dying that were still alive. Um, so she kind of went in and out of these phases and it was to the point where she was taking no food at all. And, um, so we, we just never knew what each day brought. And on the morning that she died, she was in these incredible spirits and we all raced to the hospital, right? Like we were kind of taking shifts and she got this amazing burst of energy. And, and, uh, I wasn't there at the time, but my brother recorded this video of my mom that a musician came into the room. They often have that in palliative care. And I'm sorry, say that one more time. Oh, what came was, into the room? It was a musician, like somebody oh, musician. that, yeah, I believe yeah. they were playing guitar and singing. Mm-hmm. And my brother videoed my mom clapping. Oh my goodness. And in this just most joyous way, like she was almost a kid again. Wow. And, you do hear um, of that, that rally. Yes. Thank you for describing yeah. it so. Beautiful. It is yeah. a rally. And she sat in her wheelchair that day and she sat mm. in the sun. She wanted to sit in the sun and she had her sunglasses on. I remember that. And uh, when she was tired, she told us to leave. And she told, uh, you know, my dad, you need a break. Go get some coffee or something. And it was then that while my dad was getting coffee, that uh, something in my mom, um, I believe it was uh, either her colon or something ruptured internally and that was it she went unconscious and uh my dad of course called us all back and we stayed with mom and we each took turn um saying goodbye you know listening to her breathe Mm -hmm. i told mom everything i could how much i loved her and appreciated her and how she was amazing mom and grandma and how much we were going to miss her Mm. But nothing prepares you for that moment um, when your mom, when your loved one takes their last breath. Mm-hmm. It's not like the movies. Not no. at all. It's no. not at all. And it was absolutely devastating. And my father hit him hard. He cried. He yelled. He didn't want to leave her. Mm. It was extremely, extremely painful. And the weird thing is, is that you just have to pull yourself together. You know, you kind of have this time Mm -hmm. and you sit there and then you got to pull yourself together and you got to go home. Yeah. And it's just such an incredible, weirdly, I don't know, devastating feeling. Yeah. And uh, that's what we did. So when I left my mom that night out of the hospital and my car was parked across the street in a shopping mall parking lot and it was snowing that night it was beautiful out actually it was this light snow uh, that was falling and as my aunt and I walked out together um, something incredible happened that I don't know if maybe others have experienced this but um, as we walked out there was under the parking lot light, there was a beautiful white bunny. Oh my goodness. Sitting, yeah. Sitting in this light beside our cars. And it just stood there and it looked at us and it didn't move. And my aunt and I, we absolutely froze. It was like a chill 
went down my spine and we looked at each other and you know what? I knew, I knew it was mom and I knew she was saying her final goodbye. And I think that for maybe some people, when they hear my story, that's an incredibly difficult thing to understand, but I can tell you when you're in that moment, you know, yes, you know, I hear you. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah, from that day forward, I have to tell you that the white bunny appears at me at many times when I need my mom. Oh. And you just know. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, I was completely devastated by mom's death. I mean, she was just uh, my best friend, uh, really my confidant, you know. And I thought we had so many years together, so many Mm -hmm. hopes and dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, I led a very busy life and I always thought I'll have this time when. We'll get to spend, you know, more time together when. That's kind of, and that when never happened. And I was overwhelmed with the grief. Um, And I think people can relate that it was so physically painful that it was difficult to breathe. Mm. And I found that her funeral was so difficult to plan um, because we had no clue what mom wanted. Mm. No idea. We just were in this state where we just did the best we could. And I have to actually, I'm so thankful for our funeral director at that time who guided us through this process with grace and compassion. And I really felt like we did the best that we could with what we did know about mom. Mm. And it was decided that I would read mom's eulogy. Um, I put it together. I, you know what? I felt like I needed to. And I was the one that was going to read it on behalf of the family. And I did. I did this. And I did this with clarity and focus, never breaking down. I needed, I needed to do this for mom. I just felt like a stranger could not possibly put into words how we felt about this amazing woman. So I kept it together and I stayed strong kind of all through that funeral um, uh, day. But really, it's after the funeral (laughs) when your friends or family are gone and you're home alone that it really hits hard. And I think that so many of us can relate to this, especially in Western culture, is that all of a sudden it's over. Yeah. But it's not over. It's like you wake up and you got to get up the next day and it seems like your life goes on. And I realized at that time I was completely ill-equipped to deal with with loss. Like absolutely had no clue um, how to help myself and no clue how to help my children. I just stared at my children, honestly, and my girls. You know, I had teenagers and one younger child. And I honestly just looked at my girls and hoped they were okay because I was barely surviving. I was so heartbroken and since so much pain that I didn't know how to help my children. And this, I absolutely, it bothered me so much um, that I didn't know any steps uh, to help them. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think there's other people that, that feel like that. Like you're just struggling so much. Like how do you speak to your children? How do you help them through a loss of a beloved grandmother or a parent or relative? I don't know. 
Well, I I just want to say, you know, absolutely, I hear you, but don't undermine what it's doing for your children to actually see the deep emotion that goes along with grief as well. Yes. Um, Yes. If they're in a loving environment and they know, you know, that they're cared for and they're loved and there's a sense of security, um, and, and obviously, you know, having some conversation surrounding that, but but yeah, I mean, but this has led you into an area, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, because you wanted to answer these kind of questions. Is that right? With what you're doing <laughs> you with your are, life now? You are correct. Mom's death was incredibly painful, but it was also like a brutal wake-up call for me yeah. in many ways. Yeah. And one of them was that I, I understood how precious life was. I finally got that. Like, it's yeah. so fleeting, so precious. Yeah. You can't waste your time. Right. Right. Um, so that was one of the things. And then the other was, why do we not talk about death? Mm-hmm. You know, why is this hidden? Because this is one thing that we can be certain of is that we're all going to die, but we never discuss it. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say that for every family. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. But I know that many of us refuse to acknowledge this part of the, the cycle of, of life. And for me, um, what really happened was years of kind of struggling with my own grief. Like at times I felt that I was going crazy. You know, how do I get through this grief? I went to counseling and bereavement groups, but it really didn't help that much. And I was just so tired of just talking. Like I just needed more. And I, I mean, I also went into... I started reading help self-help books and got into positive psychology. I listened to podcasts. I journaled. I meditated. I did all of these things, art therapy. I struggled. And I really felt that there's others that struggle too to find their way through grief. Can I be happy again? Can I find joy in my life again? And for me, um, you know, all of that did help a bit, but it was hard. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe, like, is this it? Is, is, it's so hard. Um, and I really saw others struggling around me um, with the same type of thing. And so I really found a different path in my life because of it. Um, I became so aware of and angry of how we don't talk to um, each other about death, how we don't allow sad emotions in our lives. Like so many of us are like, oh, well, don't feel bad. Your mom's suffering ended. Don't feel bad. How can I not feel bad? And so often we say these things, you know, but they don't make any sense. It doesn't help you. No, and I, I, I want to encourage the griever that hears those mm-hmm. messages to always switch that. Don't feel bad. Yeah. Was, the sender is saying, please don't feel bad for me. It hurts me. And, yeah. you know, I have some compassion for that. I really do because I believe, mm-hmm. you know, most of us have had loss or are going to have loss. But, and I do think that that can help us understand a little bit that people, People struggle 
with how to be present with a person during that. And many times if you're getting a message that's like, what, you know, what did you say? You know, like, isn't it time (laughs) for you to move on? Just add up for me on the end of that. Cause it's not about you. They're saying, thank you for me. I would feel so much better if you moved on. Right. And I know for a lot of people that have experienced loss, that it really can sever relationships or really damage relationships how, how, with how people communicate. So listeners, yes. please listen to this. If you're ever sitting with a person with grief and then also grievers, you know, understand that, that because this is such a buried and taboo topic, much of the time, you know, people are learning and sometimes they are just doing their best job. Do speak up and let them know, yes. you know, that's just not I understand what I'm trying to say, but I don't think you understand that that's really not helpful right now. And I think it would make you feel better, but I'm not sure that that's what I need. It's okay to say that. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Because really grief is about a broken heart. Yes. And to say these things, yes, that might be intellectually true that my mom isn't suffering anymore, but it's not helpful. Right. It doesn't help relieve my broken heart. Well, tell us about the work that you're doing now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Actually, a couple things. So there was, I'm actually um, certified in two different areas now. I decided to kind of lean into that anger and that, you know, helping people through their grief in different ways and hoping they open up about their grief. Because I do think there's a lot of people out there that really struggle with the same thing that my family struggled with. So I became certified in two areas. And the first was as a funeral life cycle celebrant. And really, this was to help people move through, move compassionately through the death and the funeral process. I really truly believe that one of the best gifts you can give your family is planning, is planning these things well in advance, making your wishes known to your family what you want Mm -hmm. after you die. I yes. think it would have made a huge impact on us mm-hmm. as a family and would give us such relief to know what mom would have wanted. And another thing that um, I became certified in is in I'm a now a grief recovery specialist. And coupled with my knowledge of positive psychology, I help people move through their grief journey. And instead of just talking in circles, Mm-hmm. You know, I work with people with an action plan to help you complete that emotional pain that you're feeling, because I know that you can feel happiness and joy again. But sometimes we get stuck reliving the painful moments mm-hmm. and we just can't move through. And so that's, you know, an area that I'm extremely passionate with. Yeah. Nice. And I also just very quickly, of course, I mentioned that helping my children was a big issue for yeah. me. And now what I also do is educate parents and caregivers on how they can help the children that they deal with, with loss and move through loss. And this is truly my, my passion project for sure. For sure. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. So thank you to your mother, you know, Mm -hmm. tragic that she had to die, but look at what she's created here by her experience. And I, I want to wrap with a few things here. When you first contacted Mm me, there was an overriding message of anger with that medical process. And I would like to say to all medical professionals that could be listening, 
do your best to do better than what you've heard yes. today. Um, not only the bedside manner, but the echo that kept going in my mind as you're telling the story is, so why can't we get the tube down? Why <laughs> yep. back at that very first scope? So I'm just going to leave that right there. But mm-hmm. um, this is not an uncommon story. And I know many of our listeners will have gone through convoluted medical process themselves. And even if you knew, you know, just magic wand, right? If a PET scan mm-hmm. had been done early or, yes. you know, that exploration of why it didn't go down, even if you knew mom was still going to die, the time that that could have given you for mindful uh-huh. living, and that might have given her a period of time to actually come to terms Rather than this fast forward, you know, she was really strung along with hope by pushing her back into the medical arena. So that comes out really loud and strong with me. And what what that leads to is a mantra I've always had for people of something to think about is when you're in a situation, I think it should be a given and it's not within the processes. We need medical advocates Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody in your life or your family, like you talked about the aunt who, you know, could then facilitate, you need somebody and actually unbiased is helpful, you know, that's not directly connected with the family, but if it is connected with the family, that's great too. Just somebody that understands medical ease, you know, understands a little bit of the process and has the ability to coach you with that. And just as you're talking about your advocacy now, you Mm -hmm. know, with grief for parents and grief for people throughout that process, do listeners consider getting somebody from your life that can advocate for you during this process so you can be more present. Note take, you know, my sister-in-law with my brother's brain cancer, she had volumes of notes. Brilliant. Note take, note take, note take. Do everything you can to be your own advocate. But if you have somebody you can call on. And then the last thing is you've said it so eloquently. It's woven throughout here. I'm hearing from you. Well, last two things is enjoy your precious time with your families. You don't know when that time is going to come. And also, again, why we're here, why we're having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Open up to the fact that we're all going to die and open yourself up to those conversations so that when these last times come, we never know how it's going to come. If you have the opportunity to be given a warning that you're able to open up to that and have those conversations with your family and let them know if your wishes. And I love that what you're doing, Christy is uh, you've turned your life into a way to help facilitate all of these Lessons that you yes. learned from I the process. Have. Yes, yes, and I'm very, very proud of that. And I'm, I, I can't wait to spread my message even more. Honestly, it, it's just an incredible gift to be able to kind of bring this education and knowledge to others. Yes. Well, I hear, mm-hmm. I hear your mm-hmm. passion coming through. So tell us, how can people get a hold of you? Well, I do have a website. It's uh, christybennett.ca, and they can check me out there. Um, that would be fantastic. And also they can go to the Grief Recovery Method website as well and um, search me 
in Edmonton. Cool. And I'd be more than happy. It would be amazing to connect with others. Thank you so much. We will have your links um, in our program notes as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. I'm just so happy to be here. I really appreciate it. And you summed it up for me so beautifully. Thank you. Oh, blessings to you and all the best in your walk forward with this work. You take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Since you've listened to this story today, I want to tell you about another podcast that I'm really impressed with. I know because you're here that you enjoy hearing people's stories. There's a podcast called And Then Everything Changed that starts at a place in time when someone's life was permanently altered. This I find to be a fascinating starting point and the host, Roni Plank, does an amazing job with her guests. Several of you have asked me, when are you going to do an episode on your own story? Well, That's how I know about this podcast is because I had the honor to be a guest on And Then Everything Change. And the result is that you can find more about my story and the story behind the Death Dialogues Project. It's an in-depth conversation that you really can't find anywhere else. And I'd love for you to listen to it. You can find And Then Everything Changed on all of your favorite podcast platforms. My episode, I have linked on the Death Dialogues Project. Uh, project Instagram profile. I'd love for you to give it a follow and listen to Ronit's wonderful podcast. And I know that you will be pleased that you're listening to it. I certainly am. I'll link that at the end in our subscriber notes. You take good care. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.